today on CityCast Salt Lake. Welcome to your long weekend. Our show is a two-parter today because, my God, we just cannot keep up with the barrage of news coming down from corporate, aka the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supremes issued a ruling yesterday that impacts the role of the EPA in regulating emissions. A really impactful one for Utahns because we live in what you might call a severe air quality state. In part one of our show, I'm talking to Lexi Tudnam, the executive director of HEAL, the Healthy Environmental Alliance of Utah. We called her to try and make sense of this ruling, and she was extremely gracious in pulling over her car to chat. Later, disability advocate and former journalist Shelby Hinsey joins me to round up some of the news you might have missed this week. It's Friday, July 1st, 2022. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Lexi, welcome to CityCast Salt Lake. Thanks for being here in a pinch. Yes, thank you so much, Ali. I really enjoyed CityCast in general and love the newsletter, and um, oh, I'm yeah. just honored mm-hmm. to get to be on it. Oh, well, thanks. I wish it was more of a celebratory show, but maybe we can end in a, in a place of light. (laughs) So this morning, the Supreme court ruled on the EPA. What exactly is the ruling? So I will do my best to summarize. In short, the EPA ruling holds that the Clean Air Act does not allow environmental protection agency to impose specifically industry-wide cap and trade regulations on on carbon emissions. Okay. So what it does, it limits the power of the EPA to actually regulate greenhouse gases from power plants specifically. They can still regulate them from things like tailpipe emissions, but from power Mm -hmm. plants. Okay. So one of the interesting things is that it doesn't actually pertain to any current regulation that is in place. Hmm. The Clean Power Plan, which this is really in reaction to, was never really enacted because there was a, I believe, a 2016 case that stopped it from moving forward. Okay. Being implemented. Right. And Utah was one of the states that signed on to that case, right? That initial lawsuit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are the implications then for clean air in Utah? Because it feels like that's one of our biggest issues, one of our biggest stories. Yeah. And I think clean air is certainly a bipartisan issue in the state. Um mm-hmm. We, we all know that it's a giant issue, just as we all know that drought and water quality and water availability <laughs> is a huge issue. Yeah. And I think what we call it um, and, and the roots of that, whether climate change or other, is important because this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of um, being able to do something about it. And there are all these feedback loops that um, mm. mean that clean air is, of course, directly and very closely tied to climate. So when we talk about clean air in our state, for example, we know that climate change drives things like wildfire. We know that um, heat and the exposed ply on the Great Salt Lake helps drive the formation of ozone. Mm-hmm. Things like methane are precursors to ozone as well. And those are all air quality issues in our state. And of course, when we talk about Particulate matter, uh, you know, there's been a lot of coverage of the Great Salt Lake recently. Right. Particulate matter is very clearly linked to climate change. Right. And those have major health and quality of life impacts for Utahns in general. Hmm. We also very much know that, as has 
been for a long time. Communities of color and low-income communities are the ones who are most affected. Mm -hmm. And so it is worrisome that this limits the number of tools that we have in our tool belt to actually address climate change. Hmm. Yeah. And specific to Salt Lake, like we know air quality issues, for example, it's worse on the West side, things like the inland port aren't necessarily going to make it better. So Governor Cox released this energy plan a couple months ago now, and in it, he named his staff named climate change for the first time ever. And I guess, have we not round a corner on regulating emissions in this state? Because it does feel like some of our state leaders are celebrating this ruling. Right. And I think, you know, there's there's an angle where states like Utah really feel like they should not have to be regulated by the federal government on hmm. Not just this, but a lot of things. And, and we feel differently, of course, because we really believe that the EPA is our backstop. You know, they mm-hmm. they set the standard for what our state and local authorities need to do to achieve climate change targets as well as clean air targets. Um, mm. You know, I, I think it's it's all about embracing complexity, right? Mm. And and what we really need to see, I mean, is that if if the state does not it is celebrating this victory, as they say, and saying that, no, the EPA should not be able to regulate our power plants, our industry to um, limit greenhouse gases specifically, then let's see it. Let's, let's see the state act. Let's see local municipal county level action on climate change, mm. because that's what's promising. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also, of course, need to see a congressional, this, there's no clear mandate for Congress to pass a law that says that the EPA has the authority to limit greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, this is what that spells out, right? Um, mm-hmm. re- we, we legislation as well as regulation. And, and so that legislative power in concert with administrative power is what means that we can, we can still move forward. Um, mm-hmm. It is just unfortunate. Yeah. Well, and I think there were a lot of people who read the governor's energy plan and acknowledging that he was still very much holding two worlds at once, like there was still mention of coal, et cetera, but hope that maybe it would be a bit of a paradigm shift towards clean energy. Like, yes, embracing the the nuance of it, but also like it does feel like a bit of a blow. Like, do you think that it's a it's a bit of a blow to the sector or do you think that people who are doing that work are going to bounce right back? It's of course it's a blow, right? It's it's disappointing to see there's potential here. Um, hmm. You know, it, the fact that the governor acknowledged climate change in his plan is is huge. I mean, and that's what the direction that we need to keep moving in. So if mm-hmm. if if the EPA cannot do it at this point, then Congress mm-hmm. needs to do something. Our state needs to do something, and they know that they do, right? I mean, our DAQ mm-hmm. knows that they need to take action on things like clean air, and mm-hmm. they know that they need to take action on climate change as well because they they know how closely those things are linked, right? While this is certainly a blow, with or without this ruling, we know that the clean energy transition is happening. It's imminent. In most cases, the, so so much coal has been shut down not because of these rules because the clean power plan was never actually Mm -hmm. enacted, but because of the economics of the situation. Coal is expensive and things like solar and wind power backed up with energy Mm -hmm. storage 
are far, far more cost effective these days mm-hmm. than coal is. And so that economic transition is happening. And, and what we need to be doing in the midst of that is making sure that former fossil fuel dependent communities are being supported in that and that they have the tax base for their social services, that they have jobs training, that they have access to make the transitions that are happening so that it's not such a blow when it does come because it is inevitable. As a leader in this moment, where do you think people should turn? I know that some environmental groups, including Heal Utah, have felt that the EPA wasn't maybe doing enough to begin with, right? Like you all were engaged in a lawsuit about the EPA's regulations not necessarily going far enough. Does this, like, yeah, what do you, what do you think? Where's your head at? <laughs> Ultimately, when we see that their ability to act is sometimes um, limited by, say, these change of administrations and, and inconsistency, like that's why we stepped up in this case and, and in the regional Hayes case to ask that the lead EPA carries forth its own regulations and stays on, on target with the dates that it has already set itself. Without that direction, our state can't make its own plans to meet those targets. And there are certain targets that different levels of, of non-attainment of air quality trigger. And so unless the EPA issues that on time, then it makes it difficult for our own DAQ to do anything about that. Like, what do we do? I think we turn to our communities first, right? That we're mitigating the impacts on those communities and those people in particular, um, first and foremost. And then, and then we look, the functioning democracy is the only thing that's going to get us out of this transition, out of this crisis, I guess. And so that means speaking up to your lawmakers in Congress, your elected officials, and asking them to pass legislation that grants, clearly grants EPA the authority to limit greenhouse gases when we know that they affect our lives and our environment as well as our health. Mm -hmm. And then also at the state and local levels, run for an office or, you know, be a citizen lobbyist with heels up at the Capitol sometime. Mm-hmm. Keep track of all the regulations that are coming through and the opportunity to make change happen at all those different levels. Mm-hmm. Lexi, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. I appreciate it. All right. Time for part two today. Disability advocate and journalist Shelby Hinsey is here, and we're talking about a couple of news items you actually might have missed this week. Hey, Shelby. Happy Friday. Hello. Happy Friday after the worst (laughs) weeks in a long time. Here we are. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about today about some of the news that you might not have heard this week, because between a very busy Supreme Court of the United States, which has now officially wrapped up their summer and primary elections, there are quite a bit of other things that happened this week that just kind of were under the radar. Yeah. Let's get into it. What's on your mind this week? Is there something that's captured your attention beyond everything else that's captured your attention? Well, of course, you know, I'm on here, so I got to talk about housing. Housing Mm. and COVID, those are my... Those are your beats. (laughs) My self-appointed beats. So I found kind of an interesting study from the federal government looking at corporate ownership of single-family homes, how Mm. much that has increased 
like the third quarter of 2021 had the biggest year over year increase in corporate ownership in 16 years, which is just wild. Yeah. Let's have some statistics. Oh. In 2011, no single investor in the US owned more than a thousand homes. And then what happened was the largest institutional investors consolidated into two companies. So basically they Mm. own everything. So like in the third quarter of 2021, this report says institutional investors bought 42% of homes for sale in the Atlanta metro area. Like that is wow. wild. And, and this report breaks down, they typically buy in lower income areas where more people of color live. They buy in areas where there are more single mothers and the rent is typically more than a mortgage would be. Hmm. I'm sweating. <laughs> they also found that while people are paying higher rents, the houses are usually not as well taken care of. Because I mean, yeah, how do you take care of thousands of houses? And then that brings right. down the property value of the entire neighborhood. And then they also found that these big investors are way more likely to file evictions than small landlords. Yeah. Because they don't know the people. You know, if it sits empty for a month while they find somebody new, they also mm-hmm. found that they're more likely they do end up selling one of these properties. They're far more likely to sell to another investor than to like say the tenants or just another individual buyer. Like hearing this information, a couple of things. One if anyone at this point is like, how is this a Salt Lake story? Housing is the only story in Salt Lake, right? And we know, like, how is this not a monopoly? Um, We also got data this week from the Kempsey Gardner Institute about the fact that in particular in parts of our state that are basically like tourist hubs, the park cities, the Moabs, that a huge percentage of the housing market share is short-term rentals. And I'm curious if there is perhaps a relationship between investor buy-up and short-term rental opportunity. <laughs> um, so yeah, in 2021 in Summit County, of like total housing units, which I'm not totally clear on, I believe that that's just single family housing units, like single family homes. 23% of those in Summit County are short-term rentals. In Grant County, mm-hmm. 19% of those are short-term rentals. And I think, first of all, I'm like, well, in Grant County, there's not like an abundance of housing. No. Grand County, home of Moab. Yeah. I'm interested mm-hmm. in like, what does this mean for hospitality? And mm-hmm. so like this weekend, I'm going on to Cedar City and I was trying to find a hotel room and I was like, well, let me look and see what like the Airbnb situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I use a wheelchair. So I like put in a you know, wheelchair accessible. There were like 300 listings. It went down to zero. Hmm. So then I started just kind of looking to see if maybe there was something that would work. I found one mm-hmm. out of the 300 and it didn't have air conditioning. Oof. In Cedar City in, in July. <laughs> right. Mm, no. So me, I have like a little bit of a beef with some of these short-term rentals. 
I don't want to see the hospitality industry, which also employs so many people, right? just be totally hammered. And, and then putting Airbnbs, verbos, whatever, they don't have to follow any like ADA regulations. And I'm not saying that this is bad and we need to like get rid of all of them, but there definitely has to be some oversight because this is ridiculous. Right. Um, Governor Cox, what, months ago, weeks ago, blamed short-term rentals for Utah's housing crisis. And I think a lot of us want to believe that there is like some single problem that we can channel our rage at. But knowing that, you know, based on what the research that they did, we're looking at less than 1% of Salt Lake County as short-term rentals. It's like, okay, this is not necessarily the problem, right? For people who live in places like Moab or Park City, like this is an absolute crisis. But here in Salt Lake County, it is possible that like, this is not our crisis. Our crisis is some something different altogether. You know, the city has embraced rezoning to allow for more accessory dwelling units, which a lot of people were worried. I mean, we've talked on this very show about like, okay, well, is that going to just increase the number of Airbnbs? And regulation is so hard, right? Like it's so hard to determine if someone's Airbnb, it's so hard to enforce. It's so hard to have the manpower to regulate that for the city. Like their permit office is completely backed up. Like it's just, it becomes really sticky. But certainly around that, my anxiety is somewhat alleviated by this study as far as Salt Lake County is concerned, which is kind of interesting and unexpected because when I clicked the link to open it up, I was like, here we go. Right. <laughs> um, I will say like I was traveling last week and I stayed in a hotel and it was great. And I am, think I'm done Airbnb. I think I'm done because here's what I've learned about myself is that I was really in on the phenomenon. I really enjoyed it. The Airbnb's best case use, in my opinion, is like a party house. It's like a bachelorette, a bachelorette weekend. You know, there's 15 of us. We're getting a nine bedroom mansion we couldn't normally afford and we're going to party there. Well, Airbnb has like basically permanently banned party houses. No parties at Airbnbs is their new official policy. So that's out the window. In the beginning, I was also extremely charmed by the idea of having a kitchen when I go stay somewhere. Right. I don't know how I didn't come to this conclusion sooner, but I never use it. I don't visit another city to cook an egg at home. I visit another city to eat out at their restaurants. Like I actually don't need a kitchen. I need a coffee maker and guess what? Every hotel room has that. And then the other thing is like, turns out I really like housekeeping. Turns out it's nice to leave for the airport and not have like a chore list before you leave to like strip the sheets, wash the dishes, take out the trash. Like it can get really intense. The reminder that you're in someone else's home while also paying often I'm discovering as well more than hotel prices to stay there. So I'm going back to hotels. I'm going back to motels. I'm going back to actual bed and breakfasts with like charming retiree owners that make delicious crumpets. I'm going back to making waffles in the kitchen area of the Howard Johnson using the delicious waffle mix. I think I'm done airbnb So, Okay, I want to talk about the Supreme Court, but not that one. I want to talk about the Utah Supreme Court. The West Supreme, the Burger Supreme Court. Yes, that's right. The understudies. So this week, Governor Cox appointed who will likely become our newest um, Utah State Supreme Court justice. Her name is Judge Jill Pullman. And 
I think this is a big deal for a couple reasons. One, if she is confirmed by the Senate, the governor feels confident that this is going to move in Judge Pullman's favor. So with her addition to the court, Utah now has a majority female Supreme Court or will by, say, September. There's, there's five, correct? Yep. Yep. There are five. Our court is five. And so we'll have a majority female court, which I think is interesting. And also a court that, and I want to be careful and not being like too presumptuous here, but very likely is a bit more moderate. And the reason for that is that Judge Pullman will be replacing Justice Thomas Lee, brother, of course, of Senator Mike Lee. Justice Lee is a very, very conservative voice, has led the court in many ways in a direction that is ultra conservative. He was briefly on former President Trump's shortlist for a Supreme Court of the United States nomination. His retirement just inherently will create a bit of a shift in the ideology of the court. And the appointment of Judge Pullman could also contribute to that. And why this matters is the exact same reason that the Supreme Court of the United States matters, right? We already saw one this week. The Utah Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Inland Port. That was a huge blow to a lot of Salt Lakers that hate the port. And we're hoping for a decision that could, if anything, just continue to stall the port. On the docket, certainly in the coming year, is going to be redistricting. The lawsuit that has been filed by a number of, of organizations in the state claiming that the redistricting process was um, biased and ruled in favor of gerrymandering. We're going to see this abortion ban escalated to the Utah Supreme Court. Planned Parenthood's lawsuit claiming that the Utah trigger law ban violates the state's constitution. And then also lawsuits over the transgender student athlete ban, which is already sort of in motion and is very likely to be escalated to the Utah state court. So I think it's important to keep an eye on. And I'm interested to see what the court does. And interested does not equal optimistic here, but it's interested. I'm interested. I'm listening. And I think it's really interesting as well. Some uh, A reporter asked Governor Clarks in his monthly press conference, what does this mean? You know, we'll have a female already on our Supreme Court. You know, what does that mean? And he said, you know, I don't care about that. You know, is she's mm-hmm. just the most qualified person for it? He walked that back a little bit. But I think that that's mm-hmm. a really interesting point that we also need to talk about. You know, oftentimes mm-hmm. we we say, well, they're the best candidate, regardless of race, gender, disability, whatever. Instead of saying they're the best candidate and they bring this perspective, mm-hmm. you know, the, like, that's it. That's a plus. And to me, that's like an extra qualification. Yeah. And so often we try to just downplay that. Say, well, I didn't hire mm. them because they are a person of color or whatever. But because of that, they're bringing a different perspective than somebody else. And that should be seen as a qualification. Right. Yeah. It is a weird talking point because it sort of like undermines someone's very identity. Right. And that's a weird thing to do. Right. Yeah, I'm very I'm I'm with you. Not not optimistic. Right. 
but interested. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, need, I, I and I'm glad that I think it is cool that we'll have that female majority. I hate calling it a majority because it's just like there's five people and three of them are women. Like, right, right. technically, yes, but. All right, Data Queen, you've got some long COVID data for us before we go. Break it to All me. Right. <laughs> long COVID, it sucks. Yeah. CDC released a report looking at who has had COVID and then has had long COVID. Hmm. Um, so this is a, a data collected by the Census Bureau and analyzed by the CDC. Okay. Um, and, and this is data collected this month from June 1st to June 13th. So as of the 13th, more than 40% of adults in the U.S. have had COVID. And nearly mm-hmm. 20% of those have had long COVID. So that equals one in 13 adults in the United States have had long COVID. Wow. And they're describing that as symptoms lasting three or more months that they didn't have prior to their COVID infection. Most likely to impact younger people. Hmm. Wow. 16% of all adults in Utah have long COVID. 40% of people who have had COVID have long COVID. Okay. In Utah. In Utah. Okay. That's crazy. That's a lot of people. And when we talk about long COVID, that's shortness of breath, brain fog, mm-hmm. loss of taste and smell, rapid mm-hmm. heart rate, hard time sleeping, sleeping too little or sleeping too much, gastrointestinal mm-hmm. issues, the list goes on and on and on. And these kinds of things can happen to you after any viral infection. I had a virus in December 2019. It may have been COVID. It may have been something else. I'm on medication now. I had a blood clot and I'll be on medication forever for those. And I don't think that we're quite prepared as a country to deal with this onslaught of people that will need more medical support, that may not be able to work or have to work less. Right. And that we need more child right. care. Yeah. It feels like for so long, we talked about long COVID like it was just sort of a one-off, right? Like it's like everyone knows someone who knows someone who has a long COVID horror story, but they felt like exceptions to the rule. And when you are inching up to a number like 40%, that starts to become really close to the rule. (laughs) Like, yeah. And, and, you know, for some people, it's just an annoyance. For some people, it's debilitating. And you don't know which one that's going to be. Well, that's grim. Okay, I would like to end with a little bit of good news that is I won't say much about because as we've established here on the show, neither you nor I are uh, sports experts. But the Jazz have a new coach. His name's Will Hardy. He seems lovely. I know not that much about him, but here's two things I like. One, he has a liberal arts degree, which I I really like because remember when Paul Huntsman, owner of this Salt Lake Tribune, 
basically talked shit about how many of his staff had liberal arts degrees. Yeah. I hope he knows that Coach Will Hardy has a liberal arts degree. And also, by the way, Paul Huntsman has a liberal arts degree. But anyways, welcome Will Hardy, liberal arts alum. And then second, he is now the youngest coach in the NBA. And I think it's quite fitting that the youngest coach in the NBA coaches for the team in the youngest state in the nation, which if you don't know, is Utah. Our average age is 30. Yep. I'm average. Um, You're average. I'm average too. Yeah, I I don't know anything about him other than the tweets that have been like, wow, he looks like he just got off his mission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're not 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 wrong. Um so I hope he has a great time. I hope he has a better time finding a place to live than the rest of us <laughs> doesn't get long COVID. Yes, exactly. These are all the things we wish for you, Coach Hardy. And uh we'll be watching not that closely, but close enough. <laughs> Shelby, have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Get some rest and try to not think about the world ending. Okay. I'm on it. Cool. That's all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Our lead producer is Nick Steffens. Our producer is Diane Magipinto. And our host is me, Ali Vallarta. Our show music is by the fantastic local band, Mitochondria. Thank you to our special guest newsletter contributor, Scotty Hill, who has been sharing a glimpse of Salt Lake's art world and her legal expertise with us in the CityCast Salt Lake newsletter. Our new newsletter writer starts next week, and I'm excited for you to meet them. You can subscribe to our daily city notebook at saltlake.citycast.fm. No show Monday. It's a holiday and hopefully no fireworks, too, because this whole state is a tinderbox. All right. We'll be back Tuesday morning with more news from around this city. Bye. OK, OK. Who says that? What like TV character says that? Oh, I know. It's um, it's uh, did you want are you a Frasier watcher, Shelby? Were you a Frasier watcher?